Quantum mechanics is, without a doubt, one of the more difficult disciplines in physics. However, contrary to popular belief, quantum mechanics is not excruciatingly difficult if you spend the time to learn it. Now, it has been months since I actually wrote this, the script for this, uh, so I did my research a very long time ago, so some of this stuff is kind of coming back to me um, as I read it and as uh, I reviewed it before starting this episode. So even now, it's not fresh in my mind necessarily, but that that's the essence of quantum mechanics. It's not too excruciatingly difficult to learn, uh, but because it the topics are so difficult, it's really easy to lose grasp on them, especially after a while. Uh, so that is why I had to review them before I went into this episode. And of course, um, that is why we will be taking this episode slowly. Um, but of course, with effort, research, and strong math skill, quantum mechanics is just another topic in physics. Anyway, in episode number 59, or this episode, uh, the many mathematical concepts behind uh, beyond the postulates will be ascertained, and the famous, and in some cases infamous, interpretations and thought experiments will be discussed. So there are, a, there are several founding principles of quantum mechanics, among them founding principles and equations, of course. We have the uncertainty principle, Schrodinger equation, um, just there are many, many things. Quantum entanglement is another good example. Even superposition, everything. There, there's quite a lot. There are many uh, different principles that form the basis for quantum mechanics. And of course, we're trying to find uh, the very basis, the very most fundamental, innate, inborn basis for quantum mechanics. And we're doing our best, right? Um, as established earlier, Werner Heisenberg's uncertainty principle sets the impossibility of infinitely precise measurements on a quantum mechanical system. As with every principle in quantum mechanics, the uncertainty principle is carried by a great body of mathematical reasoning. Uh, the uncertainty principle limits a measurement's accuracy of uh, pairs of physical quantities, often position and momentum. Uh, both position and momentum are observables, indicating that the two quantities are represented by Hermitian operators. We discussed that in the last episode, if you are unsure of what I'm talking about. Uh, position and momentum do not commute, uh, but the two satisfy the canonical, I may not be saying that correctly, but I'm, I'm sure that's right, uh, the the brand canon, and then ICAL, canonical. Um, uh, they satisfy... Uh, the canonical communicate uh, commutation relation. Now, I definitely butchered that word. <laughs> uh, the fun, which is the fundamental relationship between two canonical conjugate quantities. Uh, canonical conjugates um, are related such that one quantity is the Fourier transform, or the transform function that decomposes a function, relying on, for example, time into a function that relies on temporal frequency. Of the other, yeah. This is see. It, this is this is the one thing about the more extreme math topics is that you really need about six more years of math of learning math to understand it, because a lot of the stuff is 
a lot of it is more you're getting into complex analysis, differential geometry, abstract algebra. Uh, even, well, Fourier stuff, that starts in linear algebra, I believe. So still, it, you need a huge basis in, in math to understand some of these things in depth uh, without having to get into a Wikipedia rabbit hole. And I love Wikipedia rabbit holes. I do it every single day. But the one thing about... Wikipedia rabbit holes, especially in math and physics, is that you don't have a single clue what you're looking at. That that's the big issue. Um, but the the two observables uncertainty can be defined with standard deviation. Standard deviation, yes. Standard deviation. I'm being serious. Standard deviation. Um, it, if you don't know what that is. I would look it up. I would just look it up. That's an Algebra 2 topic. Um, with the two formulae that we would just use for um, the canonical commutation relation, um, the uncertainty principle states that the product of the two standard deviations is greater than or equal to the reduced Planck constant divided by 2, If you, um, which would just be... So basically, that's uh, sigma sub x, which I'm assuming is position, it is, um, times sigma sub p uh, is equal to, greater than or equal to, um, the reduced Planck constant, which is h with a line at the very top, um, divided by 2. Uh, one of the two standard deviations can be made infinitesimally small, uh, but the two standard deviations cannot both reduce simultaneously, and that is the mathematical, that is the mathematical basis for the uncertainty principle. You can have one standard deviation, uh, which would indicate the uncertainty surrounding the values in a particular measurement. Uh, you could, uh, for example, with position, you could get really, really, really infinitesimally close um, to being able to predict exactly where uh, a particle's position will be, for example. Um, but the other the other term is going to be just the opposite. <laughs> the other term is going to be terrible too. The, the other term will be extremely uncertain. So it's an invert. They kind of have a somewhat of an inverse relationship, but not like in. They have an inverse relationship. You could theoretically say. Um, that's that's what the basis of the uncertainty principle is. Uh, the Schrodinger equation is a linear, thankfully, partial differential equation. Trust me, nonlinear partial differential equations suck. I have somewhat learned the linear partial differential equation, and I liked that. It was not, it, it's not easy, but it's not bad. And then you get to nonlinear, and you, there is literally a debate over whether a nonlinear partial differential equation exists, uh, over whether, like, the answer to one exists, because they can be, I mean, the same thing happens with linear, but with nonlinear, it's just so much more annoying stuff is introduced. It, it becomes more difficult, let's just say it that way. Um, but the equation controls the wave function in a quantum mechanical system. The Schrodinger equation is the quantum mechanical equivalence of Newton's second law of motion in quantum mechanics, or in classical mechanics. And Newton's second law of motion, F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. There you go. Um, Newton's second law predicts mathematically which path a classical system will follow over time. And the Schrodinger equation predicts mathematically which path a quantum mechanical system will follow over time. 
college students generally taking an introductory uh, college chemistry class. So basically beyond AP chemistry, but kind of, uh, will often be, may be asked to attempt the Schrodinger wave equation. Now, I know someone myself who actually did that as a freshman in college at the University of Wisconsin in a chemistry class. I'm not aware if she took AP chemistry during high school, um, but they did do it. And the one thing about the Schrodinger equation is that, first of all, it's very, it's not actually difficult to solve. If you know what, if you know how to solve it, it's actually really easy to solve. Like if you know what you're looking at, what you need to solve for, what you need to do, it's actually somewhat easy to solve. Now, that of course depends upon a variety of factors um, and of course upon the equation itself. Uh, but for students, there exists a specific case of the Schrodinger equation that can be appreciated without a robust understanding uh, of calculus. Uh, though in physics and understanding multivariable calculus is a limited background in calculus. So basically without a robust understanding of calculus is knowing all the way until the end of three or the beginning of four, which is differential equations. And you do that alongside linear algebra for the most part. So yeah, um, one simple Schrodinger equation derives from a one dimensional non-relativistic particle in position space. Um, this is going to be just, you're going to have to listen to this formula because it's still not short and it still incorporates partial derivatives. Okay. So the formula is I imaginary number I times H, the reduced Planck constant H, um, times the partial derivative with respect to time times the, um, wave function of x and t, so like a multivariable wave function with x and t, or psi of x t, uh, equals negative reduced Planck constant squared over 2m times the, um, that it would be the second partial derivative um, with respect to x, which is position, of course, so it, it'd be, that would have been psi of position time, um, plus v of position time, times, again, times um, psi of x of t. And of course, the equation does not look easy still, right? And it doesn't. In the equation presented, um, psi of x t is a multivariable function that assigns a complex number to any point x at a time t. Uh, the parameter of m is the mass of the particle, so 2m, I just left that out. Um, to indicate it here is the mass of the particle. Uh, same here with vxt. Uh, vxt, v of xt, is a scalar potential function that represents the particle surroundings. Um, I is the imaginary constant, not arbitrary or variable, it's just constant. So like, you, I'm sure you know that I, that I, like the imaginary number I, is the square root of negative one. That is literally what that is. That's what we're looking at. <laughs> um, that times uh, that times uh, Planck's constant over two pi, which is reduced Planck's constant. Um, and again, that the Planck's constant is similar to I in that it is a constant and it's not varying. So actually, it's not terrible because a lot of the stuff in there 
is it looks extremely difficult, excruciatingly difficult, because we generally associate letters with X or Y, with something that is variable, that is variable even, uh, something that can be subject to change. Now, in many of these cases, that's not the case, because 2M, M is mass. The H with the line through it is reduced Planck's constant, or it's H bar, so like H bar, that's reduced Planck's constant. We have a value for it. The only thing you're really solving for here, um, you need to know the function. You need to know the two functions. So you have to know um, the multivariable function psi x of t, or psi of x t. Um, and then you also need to know the scalar potential function. But generally, I assume you know that. And if you do know that, you can just bring everything to one side and then solve, um, and then just, it's basically a separable differential equation at that point. It's basically that. And then you just solve um, for, you solve for, you solve the differential equation. I mean, that's basically what you do. Um, and that's it. It's, it, it. it's stunningly difficult looking when you don't know what you're looking at. Um, that's, that's one of the things. But you're given a function. This is purely arbitrary. They're doing this on purpose. It's, it's arbitrary. But you're going to be given a function. You're going to be given a multivariable function. And you're just finding the partial derivative from there. It's not excruciatingly difficult, um, at least in that respect. But again, calculus is very notorious for being difficult. So to each their own, right? Um, the mathematically rigorous formulation of the Schrodinger equation was developed by Paul Dirac, uh, John von Neumann, of course, David Hilbert, and Hermann Weyl. Or Weyl. I I'm sorry if I butchered the European names. I'm not very good with European names. I am from the United States, and we love to mess up names, apparently. Um, the formulation defines a quantum mechanical state to be a vector belonging to a Hilbert space, um, H. Hilbert space is represented by H. Um, the nature of each Hilbert space depends upon the system. For example, the Hilbert space is a space of complex square integrable functions when describing position and momentum, whereas the space is the space, wow, a lot of space, um, of two-dimensional complex vectors when describing the spin of a single proton. Physical quantities are represented by observables, uh, Hermitian operators acting on the Hilbert space, which again was discussed in the last episode, if you need any, uh, any enlightenment on that. A wave function is an eigenvector, is the eigenvector of a particular observable, and the wave function is an eigenstate of a quantum system, uh, of which the eigenstate's corresponding eigenvalue is the observable's value. A quantum state is a combination of eigenstates indicating quantum superposition. Uh, when the system is measured, its wave function collapses and yields only one eigenstate. The eigenstate is determined by the Born rule, which yields the probability of a particular measurement. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, see, it's, it's mathematically rigor rigorous, but it, it really, what you're looking at, it, it does pretty pretty simply explain it gracefully explains it and that's the beauty of math is that you can be given something that appears so difficult you can be given a scientific issue that appears so difficult something can completely perplex you for your entire life and then you look at the mathematical at the rigorous even extremely difficult 
uh, mathematical formulation for it. And in a way, math is a simplifying language because all of these excruciatingly difficult concepts, especially in science, can be understood, not even not only understood, but actually developed through mathematics. We develop almost everything in the physical sciences through mathematics now. I mean, it's almost everything. And again, that's just the beauty of math is in a way, though, it's always the thing that people struggle with the most. It's the great simplifier. It's the great grace. It's the thing that makes everything easier or it, it, it's the thing that makes everything seem easier, or at least explains things. I, I like to think of uh, Noether's theorem. So we have conservation laws, um, like law of conservation of matter, mass, charge, etc. These, we knew what they were. We knew what conservation laws were. We have many of them. Um, well, not many, but we have a number of them. We have several. And we didn't actually know how they were what what really caused them they just existed and well noter's theorem came and we began to understood we we had begun to understand what uh what the reason was for uh these particular um conservation laws and of course it actually derived from abstract algebra um and symmetry of con uh, conservative forces like it's i've done a lot of research on it and still i don't completely understand it but it is it, it's still from a hard topic but it's so much easier to understand it, it's interesting um the schrodinger equation used depends upon the physical situation of course there exists two general forms of the schrodinger equation uh the time dependent and time independent schrodinger equation uh, the time dependent schrodinger equation um is IH, so imaginary number H, reduced plane constant, times just the derivative with respect to time um, of the state, of the state function actually, um, equals uh, H with a, a, the Hamiltonian operator um, times the state vector. And where of course, psi is a state vector of the quantum mechanical system. T is time, of course. <laughs> and H is the Hamiltonian operator, which is observable. Uh, as with many equations that do not account for relativity, the non-relativistic Schrodinger equation yields only approximations in specific situations. At hyper-relativistic speeds and gravities, non-relativistic Schrodinger equations are incompatible with reality, just like all of the many things in classical mechanics that we learn. Uh, to solve the Schrodinger equation, apply the value of the Hamiltonian, the total energy of the system, to the equation, and insert the value into the equation. The partial differential equation, 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 now must be solved, which will solve for the wave function. Solving the wave function, we can take the square of the absolute value of the wave function, yielding the probability density function, 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 and thus the probability of certain measured outcomes. Uh, with the wave function in position space, um, psi of xt, the probability density function is p, probability, um, pr of x, xt equals uh, the state vector, equals the absolute value of the state vector function of x of t, uh, of xt squared.
Yeah. Uh, the time-independent Schrodinger equation is the equation uh, Hamiltonian, the Hamiltonian times uh, the state vector equals E times the state vector, where E is the total energy of the system. Uh, the time-independent Schrodinger equation predicts that wave functions can form stationary states, which are quantum mechanical states, with all observables operating independently of time. The time-independent Schrodinger equation is used only when the Hamiltonian can operate independently of time, so in specific situations. In a composite system where two quantum oh yeah, this one's interesting, where two quantum systems are considered together, the Hilbert space of the two combined systems is the tensor product of the two Hilbert spaces with a three-dimensional vector uh, u equals abc and a two-dimensional vector v equals cb. The tensor product of the two vectors is u times w kind of, u tensor times w equals acab, bcb, bccb if that made any sense. So basically you're just, it, it's its so similar to matrix multiplication. It's so similar to matrix multiplica multiplication. Um, and it just basically, it turns a three, a two, three, and a three and a two dimensional vector when you multiply it together, it's a six dimensional vector. That's basically what it is. It actually follows laws similar to matrices, but not the same. Um, the tensor of two, the tensor product of two Hilbert spaces, um, A and B, is defined through uh, H sub A B. H, of course, represents the Hilbert space equals H sub A uh, and the ten and tensor times uh, H sub B. The tensor product for two arbitrary states in the Hilbert space A and B is defined through psi sub A B equals psi sub A tensor tensor times uh, psi sub B. Not all composite states can be evaluated with a tensor product. The superposition principle implies that linear combinations of separable states are applicable. Uh, with two states of a system, A, uh, and two systems states of a system, B, the expression would be 1 over root 2 times um, the tensor product of uh, psi A and B, and I believe that would be the tensor product of phi sub a and phi sub b um, which the expression is a joint state that is not separable uh, multiple states that are not separable are entangled the hamiltonian h is the operator that defines the operator of unitary time evolution uh, u of t this is u of t equals e to the power of negative i imaginary number h hamiltonian uh, times t time over uh, h bar, which is reduced Planck's constant for each t value. I mean, this is literally a function. And actually, it's a very easy function. It's very simple. It's Euler's number to the power of an imaginary number, negative imaginary number, times the Hamiltonian, which is a value, times t, which is another value, divided by literally Planck's constant over 2 pi. It's not, it's a very, I could probably graph it on my calculator. Actually, I could graph it on my calculator. I would just have to go to the imaginary space, and that's actually easier, the complex space. Um, with u of t's relation to h, one finds that observable that commutes with h will be conserved. Its value does not change over time. Mathematically, a Hermitian operator A can generate a collection of unitary operators that are parameterized. I hope I said that right. Uh, parametric equations. Um, 
like uh, x equals cosine t times cotangent t, y equals two sine two t, um, and x, y equals cosine t, cotangent t, two sine two t. That's basically it. So you have parametric functions, uh, x, so like it'd be x of t and y of t, and then those would go into an, like a capital F of xy, for example. Or actually, it would be f. It would be f of x of t, y of t, basically. A mathematically a Hermitian operator a. Oh wait, I already said that. <laughs> yeah, no, this is. I'm still new to this. Not really. Um, the family of operators generated by a allows observable b, a Hermitian operator that commutes with a, to be conserved. A is also conserved if the operator commutes with b. This correlation between operators indicates the existence of a conservation law. As stated by Emmy Noter, there we go, this is going to actually make sense, this is Noter's theorem, for every differentiable symmetry, which the symmetry displayed above is, of a Hamiltonian H, there corresponds a conservation law. And that's actually really easy to understand, um, kind of. If you know what a Hamiltonian is, you would know um, that, it, that it is that you would probably pretty easily be able to understand a conservation law. And then you get to what the symmetries are, and then you have absolutely no idea what you're looking at. Uh, because trust me, I did an episode on conservation laws, and it was excruciating. It was the most difficult episode I ever made. This one was difficult, but that was not, it was not that bad. Actually, abstract algebra was the worst, but this one was a conservation law episode. I would highly recommend watching it or listening to it, but it was, whew. It was very, very laborious. I'll say that. Uh, no seemingly impossible equations can be left seemingly impossible. And there must be examples. Uh, the next section discusses some examples of quantum mechanics at work. Uh, one of the simplest examples of a quantum system is the free particle in a single dimension. It's similar to learning one-dimensional kinematics for the first time. You learn it in one dimension and then begin to discover the other dimensions. So you get to 2D uh, kinematics and you will start using vector properties for displacement. So let's say, you I think you understand that. If you're watching this episode on quantum mechanics, or if you're listening to this episode on quantum mechanics, I would hope that you know um, basic physics already because if you don't, I would suggest you learn it first because this is the not the this is not the kind of stuff you want to learn uh, before you learn classical mechanics. Um, a free particle is not subject to any external influences, thus its Hamiltonian is con composed of only kinetic energy. Um, the Hamiltonian would equal p squared probability over two m, um, which equals negative h bar squared over two m uh, times the second derivative with respect to x. Uh, the general solution to the Schrodinger equation in this situation is um, psi of x of t, uh, psi of xt equals one over square root of two pi, oh my goodness, um, times the inter improper integral, the improper definite integral with bounds of negative infinity to infinity um, of the vector psi function of k zero, <laughs> Um, times e to the power of i times kx minus hk squared over 2m times t dk. k is the wave vector, a vector that helps describe a wave. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that's how you solve 
um, the Schrodinger equation in that situation. Um, the solution is a superposition of all possible plane waves. That's the Euler's number to the power of all that crazy stuff. Um, plane waves are special cases of waves or fields that are constant over a plane that is perpendicular to a fixed direction in space. The plane waves are eigenstates of the momentum operator, P equals um, h bar k. The superpositions coefficients are um, psi k0, which is the Fourier transform of the initial quantum state represented by psi k0. So that's actually the Fourier transform of psi k0. That's not vector necessarily. The solution to the Schrodinger equation cannot yield a single momentum eigenstate or a single momentum or position eigenstate. Uh, for the two eigenstates are not normalizable, uh, that is, the eigenstates wave functions cannot be scaled such that all the probabilities add up to one. As a result, one can consider a Gaussian wave packet, a wave packet at the initial time of t equals zero, uh, the equation representing the Gaussian wave, uh, you can basically consider it a wave packet at the initial time, which is t equals zero. Um, and the equation representing the Gaussian wave packet in the in the wave function is psi of x zero equals one over the the fourth root of pi times alpha um, and one over that all times e to the negative x squared e to the power of negative x squared divided by two alpha uh, and it is its Fourier transform represents momentum distribution uh, with the psi vector looking thing of k zero uh, equaling um, actually the inverse of 1 over the fourth root of pi a, so it would just be the fourth root of pi a, um, times e to the negative a k squared um, divided by 2, and a k squared divided by 2, so not e to all that divided by 2. Um, as Well, alpha, sorry. Um, as alpha is decreased, the spread in position is lesser, though the spread in momentum is greater. As alpha is increased, the spread in position is greater, though the spread in momentum is lesser. This mathematical phenomenon represents the uncertainty principle. You could probably discover that because we're talking about um, the spread, which is spread, standard deviation. Um, it represents the uncertainty principle, of course, where the wave function spread from momentum and position cannot be limited simultaneously. Um, suppose we have a particle in one-dimensional space. This particle is in a box of one-dimensional space with zero potential energy, that is V equals zero, um, with borders of infinite potential energy, that's V equals infinity, uh, behind X equals zero and past X equals L. Without these or with these constraints, the potential energy term of the wave equation cancels. Anything multiplied by zero, of course, equals zero. And the equation becomes negative h squared over 2m, uh, h bar squared, um, times the second derivative of psi with respect to x um, equals e psi, where, of course, h bar is reduced by constant, m is the mass of the particle, e is the total energy of the system. The general solutions to the Schrodinger equation for a particle in a box um, are psi of x equals a e. A e like Euler's number um, to the power of i k x plus b e to the power of negative i k x, where a and b are arbitrary complex constants and k is the wave number or frequency of the wave. 
and E equals um, H squared or H bar squared K squared over 2M, where M is the particle's mass. In Euler's formula, a formula in complex analysis that establishes the relationship between trigonometric functions and complex valued functions, um, it's E to the IX or E to the power of IX equals cosine x plus i sine x. And you may know, you may recognize this um, if you've taken pre-calculus already. Um, with Euler's formula, you can, um, psi of x equals c sine kx um, plus d cosine kx. Both arbitrary, of course. Um, the values of c, d, and k are determined by the infinite potential walls. At these walls, psi equals zero. And at x equals zero, um, psi of zero equals zero, equals c sine zero plus d cosine zero equals d, because cosine of zero equals one, and d times one equals d. And c sine of zero sine of zero equals zero, c times zero equals zero. Uh, because psi of zero equals zero, and cosine of zero equals one, um, equals one, d must equal zero, because the because psi of zero equals zero, and if d cosine, if, if cosine, cosine of zero equals one. So it has to be multiplied by zero, because zero plus zero equals zero. Zero plus one does not equal zero. So d has to equal zero. Um, at x equals l, the psi of l equals zero equals c sine kl. Uh, because c cannot equal zero, sine of kl must equal zero. Um, we can satisfy this relation by con constraining KL to an integer multiple of pi, um, which K equals n pi over L, where n is an integer. The constraint on K indicates a constraint on E, which is the total energy of the system, yielding a new equation for E. That's E equals h bar squared n squared pi squared over 2 ml squared. Separating the reduced Planck constant into h over 2 pi, we square the term to h squared over 4 pi squared, where pi squared cancels out in the numerator, leading to 1 fourth h squared n squared over 2 ml squared, uh, which simplifies again to e equals h squared n squared over h ml squared. Um, now that I, no, 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 that, never mind. Um, knowing the values of C, D, and K, we can determine the particle's wave function and uh, squaring the absolute value of that wave function, we can determine the wave function's probability density function, which we can use to find the probability of the particle's position at a given X value. I, I thought before I'd leave, I'd just add one fun thought experiment in quantum mechanics. And of course, that is Schrodinger's cat. In the experiment discussed in the introduction to the chapter, uh, to the first episode of this two-episode series, series, two-episode mini-series, I, I don't know, um, the cat, because of quantum superposition, can paradoxically be considered both alive and dead simultaneously. Uh, only when an observer opens the box does the wave function collapse and the observer observes either a dead or an alive cat. The thought experiment was devised by Erwin Schrodinger in order to describe the problems he saw with the Copenhagen interpretation. The interpretation, while the leading interpretation of quantum mechanics, remains incomplete. Schrodinger's cat opens the quantum uh, measurement paradox from which many interpretations of quantum mechanics uh, were born. 
Uh, but yeah, one question you may ask to me, um, a 16-year-old who has learned little, if any, calculus in school, now I have. I've done a quarter of Calc BC, um, and I'm doing good. I have 101%, so I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, is, why are you trying to teach yourself things that you do not wholly understand? Uh, my response is, yeah, good question. The concept of curiosity resembles uncomfortability. Uh, wonder impels us to explore the tenebrous, even cavernous steps of complexity, uh, forgoing our dispositions uh, toward ease. We often may not understand the topics that excite our young minds, uh, but curiosity promises our understanding. Uh, when I look back to this chapter or edit uh, episodes, as I edit the full volume of um, De Omnibus, which is the what's the book's going to be called, um, I actually just, I actually already finished it, because we're going to be going into something new in about a month and a half, something really cool, and we're still running the podcast, but we're doing something new, um, in about a year, um, I, 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 when I really get to editing this, I really wish to see myself as an idiot, uh, by then, having taken advanced physics and math to linear algebra, I will look at my rudimentary understanding of what I will then consider an easy math equation with laughter. I shall question my intelligence, and even indulging in excoriating or criticizing my soul. Along with the many grammatical errors I make while writing these chapters, my future person shall make fun of my technical um, conceptual errors. I will instill pride in my senior self, a joyfully wandering through the fields of sunflower intellectual gold. Uh, my older person will go to college in remarkable confidence, not inexorable insecurity. I'm starting college a year early, just so you know. Um, with every episode, I implore you all to research for yourself, for I cannot guarantee that I will always be correct, and I know that I haven't always been correct. There are a lot of things that I have mistaken on here. Because you can't just explain extremely difficult topics in extremely complex manners uh, without butchering it every once in a while. So I fully, in, I fully acknowledge that I am wrong in many of these situations. And that's why I implore you guys to do your own research. Look up things for yourself. Get lost in that Wikipedia storm. It is truly invigorating, I promise. Um, if I ever notice any mistakes, I will place edits in the description. I've done it before. Um, but I merely love to learn these complicated topics. I cannot say with confidence, though, that I fully understand them. This podcast is a one-man operation. I cannot guarantee that I will be my own immaculate fact-checker. Uh, but anyway, thank you all for listening, and as always, have a good morning, afternoon, evening, and night. Take care, and stay curious.